0: Seven, psalm 107 and again this psalm is about thanking the lord for his great works of deliverance this psalm as the last one was is also a wisdom psalm and it's similar in its arrangement and coverage of many of the same subjects as psalm 105 and 106 Because this psalm starts Book 5 of the Book of Psalms, which covers chapters 107 through 150, suggests that it might not have been written as a companion psalm to 105 and 106. Psalm 107 reviews God's actions in experiences of his people, using illustrations that we don't find in any of the stories of the Pentateuch. Uh, in the Pentateuch, which is the five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The psalm starts and finishes with with request to trust in the faithful love of God. The structure of the psalm goes like this. First of all, a celebration of God's enduring faithful love in verses 1 through 3. Second, confirmation that God meets the needs of those who wander in the wilderness, verses 4 through 9. Third, assurance that God delivers those in exile or in prison, verses 10 through 16. Fourth, a declaration that God saves the foolish who will call to him, verses 17 through 22. Fifth, God's salvation of those caught in storms, verses 23 through 32. Sixth, Uh, God's provision for those in barren lands, verse 33 through 38. And then seventh, a confirmation that God multiplies peoples who are weakened, verses 39 through 42. And then last, number eight, a call to rediscover the faithful love of God in verse 43. This psalm is a request that's directed to the redeemed to praise God. The psalmist here encouraged them to praise God by showing them how he delivered his people out of the wilderness, how he broke the chains of prisoners, how he restored the sick, and how he showed his power to sailors on the sea and providentially governs nature and the affairs of men. These psalms praise God's works. They describe the blessings of those who live righteous lives. And they thank God for deliverance and they praise him for his wonderful works. These Psalms remind us that the best sacrifice that we can offer to God is a faithful and obedient life. That's what he really wants. He doesn't need anything from us. There's nothing we can do for him or give him that he needs. What we, what, the best thing we can offer God is our faithful, obedient life. This is really what God desires of us. The theme of the psalm is thanks to God should, uh, thanks to God should always be on the mind and the lips of those that he saved. And this psalm was written to celebrate the Jews return from their captivity in Babylon. The author, anonymous, don't know who he is. So let's begin now with, uh, with Psalm 107, verses 1 through 3. And the psalmist says, oh, give thanks to the Lord, look it, for he is good. For his mercy endures forever. Let the redeemed, notice God's people, let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from the hand of the enemy and gathered out of the lands from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Verses 1 through 3, again, a celebration of God's enduring faithful love. These verses here, 1 through 3, call for those, again, the redeemed, God's children who have been saved from being prisoners in Babylon to join in in giving thanks, recognizing God's loving kindness. Israelites from all over the earth returned to join the newly established community in Jerusalem. The Lord is gathering people from the east, the west, the north, and the south, verse 3 says. God is taking is talking about the people of Israel here. Notice it says, uh, again, in, in verse uh, 2, it says, Let the redeemed, God's people, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. We need more say-so Christians. The psalmist says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Are you one of his redeemed tonight? Then speak out. Say so. I'm one of God's redeemed. God has done so much for us. We have a lot to thank him for. He wants us, God wants us to tell everyone all that he's done for us. These verses aren't ordering us to go out and tell everybody what he's done as much as it is telling us that when we live in God's presence, we won't be able to keep this wonderful experience to ourselves. We won't be able to shut up. We got, you know, it's like, I mean, if, if, if you knew, if you got a million dollars for free and you know where somebody else could do that, wouldn't you tell them? Yeah. I mean, and we've got a God that saved us and has done so much for, you know, we need to say so. We need to tell people about it. Here's a couple of examples of what the psalmist is talking about. In Acts chapter 1 verse 8, Jesus said, But when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you will receive power and you will tell people about me everywhere. In Jerusalem, throughout Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 20, Paul said, All this newness of life is a gift from God, who brought us back to himself through what Jesus did. And God has given us the task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. We are Christ's ambassadors, and God is using us to speak to you. We urge you, Paul says, as though Christ himself were here pleading with you, be reconciled to God. What has God done for you? What has he done for you? Isn't there somebody that you can tell what he's done for you? Maybe instead of going around and complaining and criticizing, you know, the Lord's people or the church or, 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 you know, isn't there one good thing that, that you can tell one person about the good that he's done for you? Tell others how good God is because we read here that he is good. But you know what? God doesn't have a good name in the world today. And things like what happened this, today and yesterday, those shootings, God's name gets, gets ground in the mud more and more and more. If God was love and God was real, how could he allow something like this to happen? And that's why the Bible says we need to have an answer for every man. We need to be ready in season and out season how to share the gospel. And, and, and how not to share a gospel maybe at the times like this where we just need to pray and we need just to be there and to console people. But we do need to tell, him, tell others how good he is. Again, I, like I said, he doesn't have a, a good name in the world today. God has a bad reputation today. And I wonder many times where he got it from. Are you living the new life? Are we living the new life? Paul said in Colossians 3, 1 through 11, since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. He said, think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth, for you died to this life and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all of his glory. So put to death the sinful, earthly things lurking within you. Have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires. Don't be greedy, for a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. And because of these sins, the anger of God is coming. You used to do these things when your life was still a part of this world. But now—but now is the time to get rid of anger and rage and malicious behavior and slander and dirty language. And don't lie to each other for you have stripped off your old nature and all its wicked deeds. Put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like him. Are we like him in our new life? And many times God's reputation is tarnished because of his children. God does not have a whole lot of friends in this world. The court system is not God's friend. The government is not God's friend. Of all the billions of people in the world, not many are his friends. He has no great champion or no great crusader like Goliath. And to go out and to represent him. And only a few speak up for him. There aren't many who speak for him to say something good in his behalf. Now, we have a lot of pagan lost cults that, that, that will go out and, and they, will, they will speak about their religion. They will speak about their, their cultic God. And they will do so more than, than many uh, that, that, that belong to the, to the living God who they can have a, a personal relationship with. Again, uh, he doesn't, you know, he, he, our God is not hard to approach, you know, and, and, and he's interested in having a relationship with his creatures. And yet we have, again, uh, uh, those pagan religions who, who, who have to uh, serve, uh, who, who's, whose God has to serve them, and, and many have to die for, for their God that they serve, and our picture, God is pictured as a God that will destroy and not save many times. a God that's hard to approach when it's just the opposite. The average person today lives in a land that appears to be civilized with just, an, just a, a, enough touch of Christianity or Christian customs to look good, yet very superficial. To him, God is not a person that you come to know in a personal way. To them, uh, to the world, God is kept at a distance. He's not considered a good neighbor He's hard, and hard to please. A lot of people think of God as a policeman. As if he, you know, he, he just wants to watch him and catch him in, in a wrong act. And, and, and you just you know, can't wait to punish him. No. So if anybody is going to say that, that God is good, it has to be his redeemed. Because, as the psalmist said, he is good. And that's not a cliche. It's not a motto. It's not a half-truth. It is true. And you know what? It's something that can be proven. Verses 4 through 9. They wandered in the wilderness in a desolate way. They found no city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted in them. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them out of their distresses. And He led them forth by the right way that they might go to a city for a dwelling place. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for His goodness and for His wonderful works to the children of men. For He satisfies the longing soul and fills the hungry soul with goodness. Verses 4 through 9 now is the confirmation that God meets the needs of those who wander in the wilderness. He meets the needs of those who are lost. True happiness can only be found in Jesus Christ. And four pictures of God's loving kindness to men are now developed in the following verses. The first one is that of pilgrims who had lost their way in the desert and were on the verge of perishing if God hadn't provided for them. Homelessness or maybe just being lost in the wilderness is the first picture of danger. If you've never been homeless and you've always had a roof over your head, man, you should be more, even more grateful than those who have just, you know, gotten to home, especially if you've been raised in a Christian home. But you know what? We're all homeless in reality without God. Why? Because he's, he's only, he's our true, only our true home. He's our only true home. And apart from God, we're like the prodigal son who left his father's home to waste his belongings in a far country. And salvation started when the prodigal son came to his senses and he confessed his sin and he returned to his father. Verses 10 through 16. The psalmist goes on to say, those who sat in darkness and in the shadow of death bound in affliction and irons because notice here's why they were bound in affliction and irons because they rebelled against the words of God and despised the counsel of the most high. Therefore, he brought down their heart with labor. They fell down and there was none to help. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble and he saved them out of their distresses. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and he broke their chains in pieces. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. For he has broken the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron in two. Verses 10 through 16 is the assurance that God delivers those in exile or prison. He delivers those who are in captivity. Slaves to sin in bondage to sin. The second picture of God's loving kindness is the freedom of the prisoners who are suffering in captivity. They're described here as sitting in darkness and in the shadow of death, for example, in dark dungeons. And this is symbolic of the misery and the distress of being a prisoner in a strange land. But their suffering is a result of their sin. It says in verse 11, they had resisted the words of God. They resisted his counsel. And you know, you aren't going to end up well if you resist God's word. They despise the wisdom of his plans for their life. And in verse 12 says, that's why he broke them with hard labor. There aren't a lot of people we know who can say they've been delivered from prison literally. There are some. But all who are Christians can say that they've been delivered from the prison house of sin. And this prison is what Jesus seems to have been thinking about in the synagogue at Nazareth when he spoke about coming to proclaim liberty to the captives in Luke 4, 18. And the reason for Jesus coming to this earth earth wasn't to let people out of prison literally, but to free everyone from the chains of sin who's ever believed on him. We've been slaves of sin, but by his atoning death, we have been set free forever. And each one of us can say that we've rebelled against the words of God and that we've despised the counsel of the Most High, like verse 11 says, and that God brought us out of the darkness and the shadow of death and broke our chains in pieces, verse 14. Man, shouldn't we thank God for that deliverance? They can now thank and praise the Lord God because verse 15 and 16 says, he's broken the gates of bronze and he's cut the bars of iron in two to set them free. Verses 17 through 22. Fools, because of their transgression and because of their iniquities, notice they were afflicted. Their soul abhorred all manner of food and they drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them out of their distresses. He sent his word and healed them and delivered them from their destructions. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Let them sacrifice the sacrifices of thanksgiving and declare his works with rejoicing. These verses are a declaration that God saves the foolish who will call on him. A third picture here of God's loving kindness is the healing and the restoration of those who have suffered sickness because of their sins. And here the psalmist is is describing those who were sick and near the gates of death. Maybe you've experienced something like that. You've experienced God's deliverance from a serious illness, just like the psalmist is talking about here. The psalmist is also describing deliverance from spiritual sickness, since it refers to affliction that was caused by the rebellion against the words of God, which is the means of our healing, First 20 says. When we reject the words of God, you know what? It, nothing good is going to happen. But when we heed the word of God, all kinds of good things can happen. You see, God's word is the only thing that can heal our spiritual sickness. Because the word of God is the only thing that has life. Hebrews 4.12 tells us that the word of God is living, it's alive, it's powerful. And as the word shows us, our condition apart from Jesus Christ is a lot worse than just being sick. We're actually spiritually dead. So far as being able to respond or come to God is concerned because Paul said we are dead in our trespasses and sin. And when God speaks his word from the preacher's mouth to our hearts, uh, to the hearts of the listeners, man, we can experience a spiritual resurrection just like Lazarus did when Jesus spoke the words, Lazarus, come forth, come out of that tomb, come out of the place of the dead. And until we come to Lord Jesus Christ, we are walking among the dead. We're, We're living dead. And then using another illustration, uh, Peter spoke about our being born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. 1 Peter 1.23 and then the psalmist says in Psalm 19.7, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. If you're a Christian, God has saved you from the grave. He saved you from the tomb. And by the same life-giving, life-changing word, the living word is how he did it. Just like he called Lazarus out of the tomb. His word has called you to life. It's called you back from the dead. The psalm says that you should be thankful for that salvation according to verses 21 and 22. But the morally stubborn, the morally rebellious, who continue to do wrong, who continue in their wrongdoing, they're fools, the scripture says. And the sickness that's pictured here takes away appetite. Verse 18 says, and it brings those who are guilty to the gates of death. And then God sends out his word to heal these desperately sick people. And these people should give sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell everyone about the wonderful works of God. Verses 23 through 32 those who go down to the sea in ships who do business on great waters they see the works of the lord and his wonders in the deep for he commands and he raises the stormy wind which lifts up the waves of the sea they mount up to the heavens they go down again to the depths their soul melts because of trouble they reel to and fro and stagger like a drunken man and are at their wits end Then they cry out to the Lord in their trouble and he brings them out of their distresses. He calms the storm so that its waves are still. Then they are glad because they are quiet. So he guides them to their desired haven. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Let them exalt him also in the assembly of the people and praise him in the company of the elders. Verses 23 through 32 are God's salvation of those who are caught in storms. You ever been caught in the storms of life? Probably so. If not, you will. It's Just a matter of time. This is the fourth picture of God's loving kindness. It's a picture of God rescuing sailors caught in a bad storm. Now, the psalmist could have been thinking of Job when he wrote this. These were were commercial fishermen. These were sailors that, that, that said here to have seen the wonders of God in the depths of the sea. God sends the great ocean storms. The sailors' hearts, it says here, melted As they ride their ships, and it would go up, and then they would go down on those huge waves. One of my favorite shows is The Deadliest Catch. I don't know if you've ever watched it. It's pretty much the same thing, just a bunch of fishermen throwing out their pots and catching crab. But I, I am blown away by the storms that I see on the Bering Sea. 30 40 50 foot ways and these guys it's um and the front of that boat i i I still to this day do not understand how the front of those boats do not go under the water they go down they come back up i just you know i went to catalina on a boat that had three foot swells i thought i was gonna die (laughs) i thought i was gonna die i got sicker than a dog and yet i watched that and I, i i'm just blown away at the power of god when i see the ocean I don't know how those guys do it, man. But again, here's sailors here, the same kind of men. These were professionals. These weren't, these weren't just fresh, on the, uh, fresh guys on the boat. The psalmist says here that they're as confused as a drunk man when it comes to dealing with the storm. It says they cried to God and he calmed the sea. Let these who see this great miracle, God says here, God's word says, praise the Lord in the temple when the congregation gets together for worship and before the leaders of the nation. That's who the elders are, the leaders of the nation. If you've ever been on the ocean during a a powerful storm, then you can relate to what's described here. I mean, I can't even begin to imagine what it would be like. I love to experience long enough to see it and then just be able to get off the ship and go back to land. It just, again, it blows me away. But maybe you have been in a situation that was so totally different, but the same results. It it says that you've been at your wit's end. It said these sailors were were so blown away and and so scared in this storm. They were at their wit's end. And maybe you've been, again, not in a storm like this, but you've come to a place in your life that was something so great that you, you were at your wit's end. That you just didn't know what to do. But understand, it's at your wit's end where you find the Lord. When you come to the end of yourself, that's where you'll find the beginning of God. When you've run out of options when you know that you can't do anything any longer, that that is beyond you, that's where you'll find God. The emergencies of life tend to bring us to our wit's end, to that extreme. The pressure of today's business life, of work, family problems, we're thousands of people down. And they wear them out both physically and spiritually, mentally, emotionally. That's we have, why we have so, have so, much, so many uh, neurotics today. People strung out on all kinds of anti-anxiety anxiety and depression, drugs and, and alcohol and, and drug abuse. And it's because of this rat race generation more than ever before. And more people than ever, living without God. It's said that our forefathers lived by the calendar, but today we live by the clock. We're always looking at time. Today, everybody's in a hurry. Everybody's going somewhere. And waiting? Oh, that's a no-no. Patience? Uh-uh. We don't have time to wait. And many times God, just put, God puts us in a time. Well, we have to wait. It is what it, it I mean, that's what it is. That's, it, it is what it is today, for better or for worse. This is the world that we live in. How do you deal with it? Many have experienced the wit's end extremity. Worry, overwork, stress, strain, poor health, frustration, anxiety, depression, the list goes on and on. These are just some of the things that bring us to our wit's end. Again, it's coming to the end of our resources with a sense of helplessness and hopelessness and heartbreaking ministry. But what about Christians and this, and this coming to your wit's end? Hey, our adversary, the devil, he strives to drag us down to this place when we come to our wit's end. And he's trying to snuff out your joy and he's trying to take away your testimony. But it shows that Satan isn't all that wise because sometimes he shoots himself in the foot by overdoing it. Because when our hearts are overwhelmed, what we do, it leads us to the rock that is higher than I, and that's what we see here in all these instances. It says, when they came to their wits end, then they cried out to God. So sometimes Satan defeats his own purpose. We cast ourselves upon God when we come to our wit's end. And our vicious and not-so-bright enemy ends up, like I said, defeating his own purpose. By his viciousness, he ultimately drives us to God. And we have to learn and learn well that you and I are dealing with a sympathetic Savior, especially when we seem to be at our wit's end. Now think about this. Like I said, these were seasoned sailors. This is what they did for a living. This was their business. This was their life. These were rugged, tough men of the sea. But again, what did we find them doing when they came to their wit's end? Calling out to God. Hey, an emergency severe enough, we will resort to prayer. We will turn to God in prayer. Maybe you were going through a financial problem, a serious financial problem. Maybe a conflict conflict at work. Maybe a, a, a battle within your family. Maybe it was your marriage. An illness. If you were delivered. Listen to what 31 and 32 says again. Oh that men would give thanks to the Lord. For his goodness and for his wonderful works. To the children of men. Let them exalt him also in the assembly of the people. And praise him in the company of the elders. There's nothing so Right. Right on for the children of God to do than tell others about his undeserved favors and his infinite goodness to them. In each of these four pictures of God's loving kindness, we are urged to thank God. Now, the last two cases show us ways that we can thank God that we can give him thanks. Number one, by offering him thank offerings, according to verse 22. And secondly, by exalting him in the assembly of the people and praise him in the company of the elders, of course, according to verse 32. But how can we sacrifice thank offerings to God today? Romans 1, 12, 1, Paul said, I plead with you, give your bodies to God as a living sacrifice, a holy sacrifice. The kind that God will accept. When you think of what he has done for you, Paul says, is that too much to ask? Nothing less than offering our total selves to God is enough. Nothing else is demanded. Nothing else is wanted by God. And then after doing that, we also have to speak about God's mercies to other people as the psalmist commands. Verse 33 through 38. The psalmist says, he turns rivers into a wilderness and the water springs into dry ground, a fruitful land into barrenness for the wickedness of those who dwell in it. He turns a wilderness into pools of water and dry land into water springs. There he makes the hungry dwell that they may establish a city for a dwelling place and sow fields and plant vineyards that they may have, that they may yield Uh, A fruitful harvest he also blessed them and they multiply greatly and he does not let their cattle decrease verses 33 through 38 are God's provision for those who are in barren lands and sometimes we feel like we're in a barren land in this last section of the psalm the psalmist is admitting that not everything that the people of God experience can be described as a deliverance and it can't always be received with total joy Because life, as we know, it has its pain, it has its troubles, it has its heartbreak, even for Christians. We are not guaranteed an easy journey, but we're guaranteed a safe landing. And yet, in spite of these pains and these heartbreaks in this life, we can and should praise God for His wisdom and His goodness. And we can do this by seeing God's wise, loving, sovereign hand, even in our hardships, because he has a hope and a future for us. These things in our life, they're not because God didn't have anything better to do. They weren't random acts by God. He has a plan and he has a purpose for us and a future. And then the psalm ends with a humble recognition of God's sovereignty over all things and all circumstances reminding us that even the bad things that's all things as paul said in life are in god's hand all things work together for good for those who love god and are called according to his purpose not my purpose our ups and our downs our successes and our failures our prosperity and our calamity in people and in nations are totally in the control of and brought about by the will of the almighty god no one is brought down or lifted up unless god wills it and the scriptures gives us two examples of this reality first of all king nebuchadnezzar is one he he had a problem recognizing god's sovereignty And he refused, he he wouldn't recognize that even his own destiny was in God's hand. And when he took the glory of God to himself, as he looked out over his glorious kingdom, the city of Babylon, he said this in Daniel 4.30, is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling, but by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? And God said, okay, Nebuchadnezzar, and he punished him with insanity and he was driven from human company and he lived with animals for seven years. But later on, when he admitted that God was the most high God and his sanity was, was restored, Nebuchadnezzar praised God. In Daniel four thirty-four through 35 and verse 37, Nebuchadnezzar said, "...for his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom is from generation to generation." All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all of whose works are truth and his ways justice. And those who walk in pride, he's able to put down. Everything God does is right. And all his ways is just because God is a righteous God. Those who walk in pride, oh man, he's able to humble. And he will and he does humble. God will humble even the righteous. Look at verse 39. When they are diminished and brought low through oppression, affliction, and sorrow. The second... The second biblical truth that no one is brought brought low or lifted up unless God wills it is in the New Testament. It says, He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Luke chapter 1 verses 52 and 53. And then the psalmist starts to spell out specific proofs of God's providential government of the world. God punishes wickedness by turning a fertile well-watered land into a barren wasteland and that's what literally happened to judah at the time of the exile but now god has turned that wilderness into a fertile land again and the inhabitants can grow their crops and their fruit and raise their cattle and build their cities verses 39 through 42 When they are diminished and brought low through oppression, affliction, and sorrow, notice he pours contempt on princes and he causes them to wander in the wilderness where there is no way. And yet he sets the poor on high, far from affliction, and he makes their families like a flock. The righteous see it and rejoice and all iniquity stops its mouth. Verses 39 through 42 are a confirmation that God multiplies people who are weakened And here the psalmist continues to follow the triumphs of those that God has blessed with riches. Now troubles, they may come for a while. But you know what? God won't let them down in their time of need. The princes mentioned in verse 40, are are any oppressive dictators or tyrants? God humbles them. He humbles their pride and he confuses their counsel. The psalmist may have in mind here the troubles that were faced by uh, those who returned from Babylon after the decree of Cyrus. When God comes to help his people, all mockery of Israel and Israel's God is stopped, verse 42 says. This psalm speaks about four different kinds of people in distress and how God rescues them. Again, in verses 4 through 9, those who are lost and homeless pilgrims, Verses 10 through 16, prisoners, the distressed and the suffering, in verses 17 through 22, and those caught in storms, in verses 23 through 32. It doesn't matter how bad our calamities get or how bad our calamities are, God is there. He is in them, and He is able to help us. He is loving and He is kind to those who are distressed. And I love Psalm 57.1. It's the psalm that God gave me when I first found out that Kathy had cancer as I was going through the scriptures. God said, be merciful. He said, the, the psalmist said, be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me for my soul trusts in you. And in the shadow of your wings, I will make my refuge until these calamities have passed by. And they will. But again, it's waiting upon God. Then verse 43, whoever is wise will observe these things and they will understand the loving kindness of the Lord. In the New Living Translation, this is what it says. Those who are wise will take all of this to heart and they will see in our history the faithful love of the Lord. Those that God delivers and those who are wise will understand the methods that God uses in how he deals with us. Father, thank you for this beautiful psalm, God. And Lord, I pray that we would keep it in mind, Father. Lord, as we go through the difficulties of life, the trials, the different circumstances, and Father, when we come to our wit's end, Father, it's a reminder that We'll find God there. And Lord, help us, God, to draw closer to you, Father, to lean upon you, God, to trust in your word, God. Father, your word heals as well as judges, Lord. The very word of God that saves us will also condemn us if it's rejected. God, help us to be wise in our relationship with you, Lord. Again, help us to be faithful and obedient servants, God. That's what you want of us, God. You don't want anything that we have other than our obedience and our faith. And maybe you're here tonight and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And God's Word has spoken to you through His Spirit. And you recognize, I need Christ. I'm at my wit's end. I've used up all my resources, I, I have nothing left. Lord, I need You. The worship team's going to lead us in a song of worship. And if you want to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, then as we worship, you get up out of your seat, you make your way towards the steps up front, I'll meet you there. And when the song's over, we'll pray together a simple prayer of faith.